Now, if you have a sermon outline, I invite you to take that and, and turn either to the sermon outline or in your Bible to Matthew 26, verses 69 to 75. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly, you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The lead singer for the musical group U2, you may know his name, Bono, once said this. He said, The scriptures are brimful of hustlers, murderers, cowards, adulterers, and mercenaries, and that used to shock me. Now it's a source of great comfort. Isn't that interesting? What's he saying? Well, when we think about the heroes of the Bible, we think of Solomon as the wisest, Samson as the strongest, Gideon as the bravest, uh, and David, well, David, the greatest one who kills the giant Goliath with a slingshot. But then, and many have written on this, as we read the Bible carefully, we come to discover that these heroes admired for their greatness, they have feet of clay. That's the phrase. They are not as great as you might think. Solomon was a bigamist. Samson was a womanizer. Gideon was an idolater. Moses was a murderer. Elijah was a whiner. David was an adulterer and a murderer. And, and the disciples in the New Testament used to bicker among themselves. Well, who do you think is the greatest? I think I'm the greatest among us. And what one writer said is that in what we learn is that in spite of all this, God loved these people and used them. One guy said, they were still heroes to me, but only in a different way. They were no longer heroes because primarily they had outstanding human characteristics, but because they were people of repentance and faith. 
And today, I just read for you one of the most extraordinary and hopeful examples of what we're talking about here that's recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we come today to the story of Peter's denial of Christ. Four points in your outline. The first is that Peter was an ordinary person like you and me. And then three questions about this encounter. How did Jesus love Peter? How are we like Peter? And how does Jesus love us? So, point number one, what does the Bible tell us about Peter? And if you've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew with us, that's what we've been doing for two years, we find that Peter was an ordinary man, a fisherman, trying to make a living. Can you relate to that? Living to pay the bills. Now, I like fishermen. Pastor Martin is a great fisherman. Mike Lee is a great fisherman. I'm not a very good fisherman. I respect them. But fishermen put on their pants one leg at a time like you and I do. And Peter was an ordinary man. He meets Jesus. Actually, early on, you see how ordinary. He meets Jesus, and Jesus gives him this big load of fish, and he cries out, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He's overwhelmed by Jesus, as anybody would be in an instance like that. But what does Jesus do? Jesus says, Put down your nets, Peter. Follow me, and I will make you fisher, a fisher of men. And he does. And so this ordinary man spends time with Jesus, like you do. You come to church, you go to Sunday school, you're in a small group, you come to prayer meeting, you read good books, and you get acquainted with Jesus. Now, Peter, Peter lived with him, walked throughout Galilee with him. He heard the extraordinary wisdom that came from the lips of Jesus. He saw the remarkable power, limbs lengthened, blind people seeing, deaf people hearing, the dead being raised. And he loves Jesus. Now he's warned from Jesus. You know, it costs a lot to follow me. And this ordinary man says, I'll make the sacrifice. Jesus says, if you want to save your life, you'll have to lose it. You want the, the family of God? You'll have to lose your own family first and foremost. Peter says, I'm... I'm willing to make that sacrifice, and he does. Peter's committed to Jesus. But then he makes this infamous statement. Because Jesus says, you will all fall away from me. And Peter, in his commitment, answers him, Matthew 26, 33, just a few verses earlier, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Did you hear that? Even if all fall away, I will not. And then I read that text for you. And what we find is that pride goes before a fall. That's what the book of Proverbs says. And as we come to this terrible night, as all the disciples, including Peter, abandon Jesus and run and hide in the darkness, we have a record of one of the most humiliating public sins ever recorded in the Bible. 
Again, all four Gospels. And here's Peter. He's on the outside near that house of Caiaphas, and he's listening. And a little servant girl comes out, and she says, you were with the Galilean. And he says, I was not. And another servant girl comes, and she says, surely you were with the Nazarene. And he takes an oath, and he says, I don't know the man. And then, as the night goes on, finally the, the crowd, they've heard him talk. They understand his accent. He's from the north. He's a Yankee. He's in the northerner. Your accent betrays you. Surely you were with him. And Peter begins to curse. And with an oath and a curse, he vehemently says, I do not know him. And what happens next? Verse 75. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. What do you think? I think Peter was stunned. I did it. I actually denied him. He warned me. He looked me right in the eye. He told me that this was coming. He told me that Satan wanted to sift me like wheat and put me through the meat grinder, and I cooperated with him. I did it. He remembered that in verse 33, as it's recorded, I looked Jesus right in the eye and said, I will never do that. This is the experience of a disciple of Jesus who has sinned. And suddenly, all the excuses and the blame shifting evaporate. And he sees it for what it is. What does he do? The end of verse 75 tells us, and he went out and wept bitterly. And we see his desperation and his dis distress. Well, point number two leads to this obvious question, what's going to happen to Peter? Is Jesus going to forgive him? And as you trace through all the threads of the four Gospels about this encounter, both before and after, it becomes amazingly clear that Jesus loves Peter. You know, if you or I were in the shoes of Jesus, how would you have responded to Peter? What would you have said to him? And you might have said, how could you? You promised me. I'm so disappointed in you. But what does Peter experience? Is that what he hears? Is that what he experienced? No. He has been with the Master. And he's not presuming, but surely, surely, eventually, in some way, it becomes very clear to him what Jesus taught 
back in Matthew 18, verse 21 and 22, because, see, that was a time when Peter had a conversation with Jesus about forgiveness. And remember how Peter felt just so, so magnanimous. He felt so pious. Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times? Jesus says, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven times. The forgiveness of God is like an ocean. And those words of Jesus will come back to Peter. How will they come back in reality to him? Well, Sinclair Ferguson, on his comments, comments on this, he points out that Jesus loves Peter by convicting him of his sin. How does he do that? Well, it's actually a pattern that, that is the experience of all who belong to Jesus, but for Peter, it's, it's, it's explicit. First, he remembers the word of the Lord, and then he encounters the Lord of the word. Pay attention to this. That rooster crows. And what does Peter remember? He remembers the word of the Lord. And not just that word that Jesus says, but of course then all of the scriptures. What is the commandment? You shall not bear false witness. You must tell the truth. And he has now denied Christ three times. He has broken the Ten Commandments. And he knows that in his head, he, he, he remembers the word of the Lord. But then Luke, in Luke's gospel, it tells us something exquisite. He captures this moment. Because it hits home with Peter as Jesus is being led out to the portico, out to the patio. And Peter is over here, and Jesus is over there. And then Luke tells us he turns and looks at Peter, and their eyes meet. What was that like? Can you imagine what that was like? Put yourself in Peter's shoes. And out comes Jesus, tied, his face bloodied and blue, his eyes black and swollen, blood are upon him. He's been mocked and humiliated. And Jesus walks out on that portico on his way to his death. And he stops and turns and looks right at Peter. And their eyes meet. And with the word of the Lord comes the encounter with the Lord of the word. And that is the moment when conviction of sin breaks his heart. He had the head knowledge. Now he's cut to the heart. He saw the face of the one who just hours before said, this is my body broken for you, given for you. This is my blood of the covenant which is for you. And he weeps. He weeps because he knows that he did not just betray his best friend, which is terrible enough. But there runs deep. Underneath the knowledge of every sin that we are committing treason against our Creator and against the Messiah. 
Is there any hope for Peter? In the darkness of that terrible night, is there hope? Is there a way out of the crushing guilt and now my failure right in front of my eyes, breaking my heart? And the answer is, oh yes, my friends, there is. Because Jesus now goes on. And where does he go? He goes to the cross. He goes in a few hours to the cross where the Lamb of God will take away the sin of Peter and the sin of the world. And full atonement will be made. Abundance will, of grace will flow to people everywhere through the centuries around the world. But to Peter, Jesus is going to die. Peter will soon understand the forgiveness of his sin through the death of Jesus Christ. But you know what? Death cannot hold Jesus, does it? And three days later, what happens? Do you know what happens three days later? Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead, triumphant over sin and death, our sin could not hold him there. Our, our, his death could not hold him because he was sinless. And he rises from the dead and he departs from the tomb. And the ladies come to the tomb. Remember that? And they meet an angel. Mark's gospel tells us they meet an angel who rolled the stone away. And, and you know what the angel says? The angel sell, says, go tell the disciples that he is not here and he will go ahead of them into Galilee and they will meet him there but I left something out does anyone know what I left out he said go tell the disciples and Peter isn't that strange go tell the disciples and Peter the Lord wants Peter to know. And they go to that room, that upper room, where the disciples are huddled in their fear and their anxiety. And, and, and the, the women come in and they say, Jesus is alive. He is alive. And Peter, the Lord wants you in particular to know it. And so the Lord is, a, is one who pursues sinners, who pursues his people. Peter. The Lord wants you to know. He wants me to know. Me who just denied him. He's for me and not against me. And he remembers the words in Luke 22. How is this going to work out? Well, in Luke 22, you have that record of that earlier conversation. Something so crucial to Peter's recovery. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Look at what's next. One of the most precious truths of the Bible. Get out your highlighter. Highlight it in your Bible. What's the next phrase? But I have prayed for you. Wow. That your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You know, when Jesus said that, 
Did Peter say, oh, thank you, Lord, for praying for me. I'm standing in the need of prayer. I'm a weak man. I Did, is that what Peter said? Verse 33 of Luke 22, Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Did Peter understand what it meant that the Lord had prayed for him back then? I don't think he did. But I think now he does. I have prayed for you. One of the most neglected doctrines in the Christian church is what we call the session of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is in a perpetual prayer meeting for his people at the right hand of the Father. After he ascended up into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he continues to intercede for, to pray for us. It's called the session of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does not take vacations. He does not put you on hold. He does not go to sleep and slumber. He never slumbers or sleeps. He prays for you. Did you know that? I have prayed for you, Peter. Oh, how he loves Peter. And then the last thread in this tapestry of the story of Peter is found at the end of the Gospel of John. And do you recall, after the resurrection, they're out fishing, and they see Jesus on the beach there. Remember that? And when Peter sees it's Jesus, instead of this time saying, Lord, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, he hikes up his garment, jumps in the water, and runs to Jesus. And there, there... Jesus brings closure to this moment. John 21, 15. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to, them, yes. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. What a moment. If you really understand what's going on, two things I just point out to you. The one is that I think Jesus said this three times. A number of the, uh, the early commentators back in the early centuries, they noticed there was three. As if it was one for each of the denials of Peter. Let's put it in the past. Don't keep coming back to this, Peter. Don't keep coming back to this. Don't come keep, keep coming back to this. Let's move forward. And then he commissions him. And he says, now I'm going to use you to feed my sheep. And 
there might be an echo in Peter's mind because Jesus said, I prayed for you, and when you turn, strengthen your brothers. Oh, that's what he meant. That is what he meant. Peter, you're a fisherman, and I've forgiven you your sins. And the Bible says your sins have been tossed to the depths of the ocean. No more fishing <laughs> for those sins. Okay, point number three. How are we like Peter? Have you felt any empathy, any identification with Peter yet? Because this is the bigger, more important question. How are we like Peter? And do you, you who are ordinary people just like him, who also sin in extraordinary ways, just like he did, do you experience the same love, the same grief, and the same repentance that he did? All the great fathers of the faith who've paid attention to this story in all four of the Gospels, they say, you know, Peter represents all of us. We are ordinary people who, yes, are getting to know Jesus Christ. Again, in your Bible study, you should be in a Bible study. You should be in a prayer meeting. You should be having daily devotions and Sunday school, and your children should be in youth groups. So why? So we can get to know Jesus better. We want that. Ordinary people growing in the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ. It's wonderful. But we also fall. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That may not be a verse you want to hear. You might say, oh, that doesn't apply to me. I I'm, just, I'm just a very fine disciple of Jesus. I don't worry about sin anymore. You know? And you say to yourself, well, I would never do that. Whatever that is. Hmm. I spoke with someone this week who is one of the holiest people I know. Uh, this is a person of prayer who's got scripture memorized, who is a servant, an exquisite servant heart. And they said, What are you preaching on, uh, Pastor John? And I said, Well, I'm preaching on the denial of Peter person got flushed in their cheeks and, and said, that was a bad day for Peter. I would never do, I hope, they said, I hope I would never do what Peter did and, and just say, I'll never commit that sin. I was a little surprised because this is the holiest, one of the holiest people I know. St. Augustine, when he commented on this passage, he said, he said this. He said, Peter was a more faithful Christian when he was broken and weeping over his sin. 
than he was when he boasted. Though all fall away, I will never deny you. How did you feel singing that song before the sermon? Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. How did you feel singing that song? Did you mean it? That's a great song. It represents my heart. I know that. Does it represent your heart? Are you tempted to disown Jesus? I think Peter's sin is a very, it, it was a terrible sin. It's a very dangerous sin. It's a serious sin. It is a lie. If you say, I don't know Jesus, whether by commission or omission, when you should acknowledge Jesus, it's not always easy to acknowledge that Jesus is your Lord. Maybe you have parents who disapprove of your strong commitment to Jesus Christ. Maybe you have, you have children who think you're old-fashioned and out of touch. You know, every year in September, there's this one day of the year when uh, all the Christian organizations tell, element, or, or tell high school students to meet you at the pole. It's called See You at the Pole. Have you ever heard of that? And what happens is that teenagers from all the different churches in the town go to the flagpole at their church, at the school, at the public school, and they circle around it. It's a student-led thing. But it's from all the different churches, and they stand, and they are not ashamed, and they identify themselves as, uh, as disciples of Jesus. And you know, down in Alabama, they turn out by the hundreds. And in Texas, they turn out by the hundreds. And in Georgia, they turn out by the hundreds. Every public school, the flagpole, surrounded by hundreds of young people who have the courage to stand up and say, I'm identified with Jesus. I'm not perfect, but I need a Savior. He's my Savior, and I will pray for my school and the kids in the school. But on Long Island, oh, I'm actually very proud of many of the teenagers of our church. Some of them stand alone. Maybe there's five. But maybe there are those who are ashamed, afraid, and I can understand that. But if you name the name of Jesus, then don't be a secret agent. You know, how's your witness going at work? Well, it's going great. Nobody knows I'm a Christian. Maybe you experience conviction of sins, but you know what? We are like Peter in that there is forgiveness for sins, and that's the fourth point. How does Jesus love us? 
And of course, the answer is that he looks at you, engages you, and reminds you of his word, and you experience that conviction, this is where I've transgressed, and it's not just in your head, but it moves down to your heart, because he looks at you. He encounters you. He engages you because he loves you. And when you see him through the eyes of your heart, not your physical eyes, but the eyes of your heart, the Bible says, the eyes of your heart behold him. He says, I love you and you are mine and I will not let you go. How many times have I told you? I never tire of telling you. Jesus loves you just as you are. But he loves you too much to leave you just as you are. And so, out of his love, he convicts you and me, of our, he convicts us of our sins. And out of his love, he then meets with us and goes down to the soil of our hearts. He says, you stand forgiven because of the cross. Now, let's do some business together. You say, is this really necessary? This is so old-fashioned. The church has to talk this way. This is like those old revival meetings that they used to have. Really? One commentator I read this week, Andrew Siegenthalter, and I think he's quoting Robert Rayburn, a great Presbyterian uh, preacher. He says, every time the Lord renewed his covenant with his people in the Bible, they commit these extraordinary sins. God makes a covenant with Noah, brings him through the dreadful judgment of the flood and preserves Noah, his elect person, on the other side of it. And, and not long after that, Noah gets drunk and his son uh, uh, disrespects his father. He makes a covenant of grace with Abraham. Abraham, the father of the faith, the covenant of grace is established. And not long after that, he gets a little nervous about Pharaoh, and he says to his wife, you know what, tell them you're my sister. And he ushers her into Pharaoh's harem. He makes a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, and there's Moses. The thunder and the lightning are there. God is there, and the God is describing his relationship with his nation to Moses, who's to go back down to them. And when he goes back down to them, what does he find? the golden calf, and the wild sin of the people. He makes a covenant with David, an everlasting covenant. And one shall come from your loins who will be seated on the throne forever and ever. And not long after that, David commits adultery and murder. And now, on this night, this very night that we read about, Jesus initiates the new covenant, right? This is my blood of the covenant for you. And they haven't even digested the meal. And Peter denies Christ. This is why you must 
preach the gospel to yourself. And memorize what Paul writes in Ephesians 1 verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. I think that the reason we have this record of all these failures in Scripture is so that you and I know that there is only one who is faithful. There is only one who is faithful. This is never to diminish sin. Oh, Pastor John, don't you care about sin? Sin is horrible in the eyes of God. But please understand this. Augustine was right. As I paraphrase him, Peter was a better Christian when he was weeping over his sin than he was when he was saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good disciple. I've got it all together. You guys should pay attention and follow me. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. That's, that's what we sang together. Is that your prayer? And maybe, as I conclude, maybe there is someone listening and you have a lot of pain in your soul because you remember how you failed. And you have this little rooster inside your head. And it keeps crowing. Could that be you? And you say, I know intellectually I'm forgiven, but it still hurts so much. Well, on the one hand, that's just God's grace reminding you how much you do need Him. But on the other hand, don't forget that breakfast date that Jesus had with Peter. Because when He asked him three times, do you love me? What will you say? What will you say today, right now? As we uh, close this service, will you say, Lord Jesus, I love you? And three times he was saying, Peter, it's over. It's over. It's complete. My blood covered it all. Let's move forward together because I want to use you. Do you understand that? He doesn't forgive you just so that you escape hell. He forgives you so that now you may be used to strengthen your brothers and sisters here in this church because your brothers and sisters in this church need you to strengthen them. And you need to be his witness to the world. Will you do that? So, we conclude with this hymn, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in thy behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. What is a surety? It's a legal term, a guarantee. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Let's pray, shall we? Our Father, today we thank you that when Jesus' eyes met Peter's, we learn how you meet with us. 
And then you go to the cross, and you take us with you to the cross. And there we see full atonement. And, oh, our Father, we pray that you would help us to grieve over our sin. We invite you to encounter us. Show us where we lie. Show us where we are selfish, where we are greedy, where we are lustful, where we have a sinful rage burning inside of us, a, a love of pleasure, of, of, of uh, alcohol and drugs and narcotics and love, uh, and idols, all kinds of idols. We welcome you. We really do to do business with us because we know that you love us. And we welcome you to do that new thing inside of us. And like Peter, to commission us to be yours in this world. And for those listening who say, yes, but the pain of my failures and sins run so deep. We pray you enable each of us and these dear ones in particular to shake off their guilty fears and to behold Jesus dying and rising for them, for us, for me. In his name we pray. Amen.